All right. Why don't you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, please. The message is simply the woman, Hannah. Hannah is an incredible woman who occupied a very small period of man's history, but her dependency and faithfulness to God affected the entire nation of Israel through her son, Samuel, who became the prophet. As well as providing important lessons for every generation for the people of God. She was a woman who longed for a child and to experience motherhood, but she was barren. What a contrast to the majority of women of our day who put marriage off to be sexually permissive and motherhood by aborting unwanted pregnancies focusing on trying to be equal with men. What a contrast. Others having children desire to feel good and have some self-worth, and so they enter the workforce abdicating their hard privilege of raising and guiding and supervising their children. And our nation has paid a great price for this. Today, the goal of most parents is um, personal fulfillment, Now, I'm talking from the worldly perspective, though that can still happen in Christ. But the mindset of the world is totally different from the scriptures. And um, they do not hesitate to remove whatever constraints the children might impose upon them to enjoy and feel fulfilled in their lives um, at the expense of the children, of course. And so the story of Hannah is one of obedient faithfulness. To God, despite the circumstances of life that unfolds for us in three movements here, we begin in chapter 1, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 2, verse 11. I'm not going to read the entire thing as usually at front. We will track it as we go. We'll be able to follow it. But let me give you the three the un- that unfolds this movement, the three movements. First, <clears throat> we have Hannah's affliction in chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. Second, we have Hannah's petition in chapter 1, verse 8 to 18. And third, you have Hannah's acquisition in 1 Samuel 1, 19, all the way to chapter 2, verse 11. I'll be repeating those in every point that I do. Now, let's begin with Hannah's affliction here in chapter 1, the first seven verses. Notice in verse 1 and 2, the affliction of Hannah was due to her marriage condition. She was married to a man named Elkanah, which means God has possessed or God has created. Beautiful name. He was from Ramathim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, one of the tribes. That literally means the two high places of the watchmen. It is believed they were two contiguous hills on which watchtowers were built and in which Watchmen kept continual guard for the safety of the country and which afterwards gave the name to that place, about five miles northwest of Jerusalem. Now, notice he was the son of Jeroham, whom they're the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Suf, and Ephraimite. The genealogies are important. God gives them so we can trace people and compare them and make sure that the Bible is accurate in every way. 
Notice in verse 2, she was one of two wives. That's always a problem. <laughs> um, one wife and one husband is the best way to go. The name of the one is Panina, which means coral. Uh, some say pearl or jewel. And uh, she had children. The woman Hannah was the other wife, and her name means grace or gracious gift. Beautiful name. And she had no children. Barrenness, as you know, was a mark of shame and not being right with God. It being in disfavor in the Old Testament if you were a woman. In fact, it was one of the only reasons you could divorce your wife. Another one was impurity. Barrenness was a tragedy for every woman, for the hope of every Israelite woman was to bear the Messiah. The promise was that a woman would bear a son. Never knew who. Now the condition of the two wives, notice, can only bring affliction to any home. The past history of Sarah and Hagar, Rachel and Leah, a house full of jealousy, envy, and favoritism should have taught them this basic lesson, particularly when it comes to not being able to have children. Sinful nature is horrible, and uh, we're vicious against each other. Notice she lived in the period of the judges. This is a historical period of time. It lasted about 305 years, more than our nation has lasted so far. And um, the first 12 chapters of 1 Samuel are part of this period of judges until Saul reigns as the first king of Israel, going from a theocracy um, to anarchy and finally to the monarchy. We are in a state of anarchy in our nation also. It's, it's growing, but in the last administration, we went from the last stages of this republic to anarchy, mob rule, not law anymore. Everything is decriminalized, vocabularies change, everything. Now, the two common phrases in the book of Judges were, in those days, there was no king in Israel. The other one is, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's anarchy. That's what you have in our nation today. The office of president is being attacked continually, disrespected. The rule of law is ignored. It's an amazing thing how quickly it's happened. It was a time of moral religious decay and political chaos resulting in social anarchy, as I said, like today. There's certain steps that happen for this. While other women were um, following the order of the day, Hannah followed the Lord. But it was not easy. We saw Ruth last week. Ruth fits into the same period of judges. These ladies uh, were contemporaries. Look at verse 3 through 5. The condition of Hannah would not go away by her husband's favoritism. Her husband went up in verse 3 yearly to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. The two sons of Eli were there, Hophni and Phinehas here, and they were the priests of the Lord. 
In verse 4, her husband Elkanah would always give to Paniam or Panina and her children a portion of the sacrifice. But in 5, her portion was always double that of Panina for Hannah. Interesting. The reason being that he loved her, it says in verse 5. It is impossible to love two women or two men equally at the same time. You're going to love one more than the other. It's impossible for you to have two girlfriends, two boyfriends. Plus, the other probably won't tolerate it. But you never know the way things are today. Anything can happen. The other reason in verse 5 there was that the Lord had chosen or closed up Hannah's womb. Notice that. She could not be satisfied with materialism. It's vain. It's empty. She could not substitute a double portion for being a mother. Ladies, your highest calling is to be a mother. A wife and a mother. There's nothing greater than that. Nothing. Nothing will fulfill you. Nothing will put you in line with God more than that. God created you for that. You are a walking altar. When you started your menstrual period, ladies, you had that once a month. When that egg was not fertilized, it had potential life. And blood covered that life. You get to a certain period of time, when you get older, you go through menopause. No more blood. Why? No more eggs. No potential life. You're a walking altar, ladies. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given you the blood, the atonement for sins. Is God good or what? Amazing. Amazing grace. Look at verse 6 and 7. The condition of Hannah was um, made worse again, Panina's antagonism. Um, Panina was the rival, uh, says in verse 6, which means adversary. Panina went out of her way to, pro to provoke Hannah severely in order to make her miserable, which indicates anger and indignation and uh, causing her to rage. Uh, we learn quickly as children how to get over somebody, how to antagonize, how to get revenge. It comes natural. My parents didn't have to teach me that. Benina's motive, notice, was malicious <clears throat> because the Lord had closed up her womb being unsympathetic and uncompassionate, knowing she would only humiliate and shame her even more. Remember, her name, Benina, means jewel, pearl, or coral. If so, she is true to her name as coral is very cutting and sharp. So she is a person and as a pearl, which is a product of pain, yet having a sense of beauty on the outside. Hmm. You have a panina somewhere, ladies? <laughs> then God calls you to pray for her. That's for wisdom. She's there by appointment. God's in this whole condition. Notice verse 7. 
Penina provoked Hannah year by year as they went up to the house of the Lord. And Hannah was being attacked spiritually when she should have been focusing on the Lord. Warfare. You need the armor. You need to know how to do good warfare. Prayer. The word. Being filled with the spirit. Hannah was afflicted emotionally as she wept here in verse 7. The word wept means to bemoan, to be well, and anguish and complain due to the provocation of her barrenness. A real difficult situation. A real situation. The Bible deals with real life. Women are um, moved and affected by their emotions more than men, as you know. For that reason, the word must be the criteria for their decision-making. So ladies, you have to bring your emotions subject to the word of God. So that when you make decisions, you make them based on the word of God, not your emotions. Hannah was also afflicted, notice, physically as she did not eat in verse 7 at the end there. Our emotions will affect us spiritually and our physical bodies, either in a good way or a bad way. We're body, soul, and spirit, an inferior trinity. Helen Keller said, quote, I thank God for my handicaps, for through them I have found myself, my work, and my God. For some of us, it was God's grace, the conditions we were in, that caused us to respond to God. And God used those situations. Hannah's affliction caused her much suffering. Notice, secondly, comes Hannah's petition in verse 8 of chapter 1 down to 18. In verse 8, the petition of Hannah was in view of her husband being insensitive. I know it's hard for you ladies to understand that men are, are, are real sensitive. They're not insensitive, are they? We're two different creatures, ladies. We are moved by what we see and you're moved by what you feel. You have greater highs, greater lows. We're going, what's the problem? So we must study the word. And God gives us wisdom. God deals very clearly with the understanding of the opposite sex biblically. God takes care of that. Elkanah was completely oblivious in verse 8 here to the provocation of Penina towards Hannah or maybe plain indifferent about it, evident by the threefold question. Elkanah in verse 8 there was completely ignorant. I mean, between a mother's love for a son and that of her husband. Am I not better than to you than ten sons? No. That's a dumb statement. There's good intentions. But sometimes we don't understand each other's husband and wife because we respond differently. But as Christians, we can be sensitive. We can be uh, praying. We can be submissive to serve one another, which is totally different than the world. Okay? And the word is, you don't like this stick in your ear. I'm, I'm out of here. Huh? That's what you say. But in the Lord, we have an advantage. 
Notice verse 9 and 10. The petition of Hannah was unto the Lord who knows all things. She arose in verse 9 to worship and sacrifice as Eli sat on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle. He's a high priest. She was in bitterness of soul and she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Verse 10 tells us her bitterness of soul that affected her emotion caused her feelings to cloud her ability to fix on the Lord. But now, being open to the Lord and His will, she is brought into the meaningful interaction with the Lord in verse 10. Her prayer refers to intercession, to entreat or supplicate. Her prayer was as she wept in anguish, notice, which means a strong crying and tears very fervently and affectionately. Perhaps about the time of the evening sacrifice. About the time of the evening sacrifice, about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, seeing it was after dinner, that she arose up and went to pray in the house of God. Notice verse 11, she prayed with personal commitment. Her prayer was accompanied with a vow to the Lord of hosts. The title means the captain of the armies of heaven, as you know. Nothing can defeat him. Nothing can oppose him. He reigns supreme. Notice her prayer was addressed to the only one who could look on the affliction of his handmaid with understanding and remember her barrenness. Her prayer was very specific that God would give her a man-child. Do you pray specifically? Or say, Lord, whatever. God wants us to pray specifically. Too often our petitions are too general, shotgun style. Notice her promise was that she would give him back all the days of his life. And no razor would come upon his head, the Nazarite vow of Numbers chapter 6. In verse 12 through 18, the petition of Hannah was misunderstood by Eli the priest. Wow, you say, wow, how could he do that? Simple. Men are human and perfect. Verse 12 through 14, Hannah was being watched by Eli the priest. And he thought she was drunk due to the fact that her lips were moving, but no sound came forth. For she spoke in her heart. Therefore he rebuked her, asking her to put away her wine. Eli thought she was from the emerging church. (laughs) How interesting that Eli would confront and attempt to restrain the people of God. But not his own children. His two sons who were laying with the women. At the door of the tabernacle and putting God's people in a position of abhorring the sacrifice because they were ripping them off. You find this in chapter 2 verse 17 and chapter uh, uh, 3 verse 1. Amazing. You see, my sin looks uglier on you than on me. I can understand why I did it, but you, I don't know. Welcome to the human race. Notice God helps us 
if we ignore, justify, or cover up or are plain and different to the sins or sinful lifestyle of our children. May we have the courage, the commitment, and love to confront them, restrain them, and bring forth the necessary consequences as Christian parents. Sadly, too often Christian parents don't, and they become enablers of their destruction to their children. If you draw a line and your child sticks his big fat foot over it, please don't disappoint him. If you say, if you cross the line, I'm going to knock you out. Do it. <laughs> Keep your word. Faith for the wounds of a friend, deceit for the kisses of the enemy. Proverbs 27, 6 says. If the people around you always tell you what a great person you are, go get some real friends. <clears throat> real friend will tell you who you are. Chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. Proverbs 19, 18. Notice in verse 15 and 16, Hannah then told Eli her true condition. She says she was a woman of sorrowful spirit. Verse 15. She didn't know why God had shut up her womb back in verse 5. Right? She wasn't understood by her husband in verse 8. And she was being misunderstood now by Eli, the high priest of God, in 12 through 14. Wow. So she says she was not drunk with wine or intoxicating drink. It would be an act of being irreverent towards God. It goes to show you the days that Eli was living in. Every man doing was right in his own eye. No godly fear. Like today in the church. There are people that will come to church who declare to be Christians and they're living together with a man or a woman. And they still call themselves Christian. Really? Or singles that are fornicating or getting loaded or getting drunk. And, well, uh, the plumb line says you're crooked, man. You're not in line with God. It's only self-deception. Remember that the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu partook of drink before they offered the first sacrifice. After all the instruction, God struck them dead, barbecued them, Leviticus 10. Then he told Moses, make sure when you guys come before me, don't take no wine. Don't be drinking. Wow. Notice still verse 15 there. She said um, she had poured out her soul before the Lord, not just an emotional release, but a total emptying of self. To purpose and desire only that which was going to glorify the Lord. An emotional experience that brings about true change is legitimate. An experience of emotionalism that results in no true change is deception and worthless. Prayer is for the aligning of our life with the will of God in order that the purposes of God can be accomplished in us and through us. Not for our will, not for our benefit, not for our glory, but God's. Notice 16, she says she did not want Eli to think of her as a woman of Belial, of Satan. But rather a woman who, out of the abundance of her complaint and grief, had spoken to God. 
So Hannah receives a blessing in verses 17 and 18 from Eli. Eli, in verse 17, proclaimed God's peace over her and that her petition might be granted. It was not a promise that it would. He's making the thing. Now time's going to tell if the priest is really speaking under the inspiration, right? Time will tell whether God's speaking through him or not. A lot of people here, they, they say God spoke, speaks to them and they tell somebody, you know, God told me to tell you this. And then they go out and they try to fulfill it and then they get all messed up and they blame God. No, blame the guy and blame yourself. You should, if God's in what they said, then God will bring it to pass. That's not the author of confusion. Notice in 18, Hannah left with her face no longer sad. You talk to people, you're still going to be sad. You get some comfort. You talk to God, everything's going to change. I wish we were as, as, as eager and as quick to talk to God as we are to people. This is true and truly the work of God by His Spirit. For her circumstance had not changed at all. She just heard God's word. Made all the difference in the world. As Eli spoke it forth, God made it real in her heart. She knew God was speaking to her. That changed everything. And nothing had changed in circumstance. She's not pregnant. Panina's still there. Her husband's still insensitive. What has changed? She's heard the voice of God. Wow. Abraham Lincoln said, I remember my mother's prayers, and they have followed me. They have clung to me all my life. All that I am and hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. Prayer. Somebody prayed for you. That's why you're here. And when people see you that you're saved, they can't believe it. <laughs> Especially if they're saved because they used to know you. It was said of Hudson Taylor, his mother, that her closed door in the middle of the busy day had a world of meaning to the household. People of prayer. Hannah's affliction drove her to a petition that align her with the will of God and the purposes of God. God will do that in our lives often. Notice thirdly, we get Hannah's acquisition in verse 19 of chapter 1 down to chapter 2, verse 11. In chapter 1, 19 to 28, Hannah experienced conception. Now, if God spoke, then God's responsible to make sure she gets pregnant, right? In the truest sense. So, she and her husband arose and worshipped early in the morning and returned to the home, verse 19. And she was known by her husband, meaning sexually, and the Lord remembered Hannah. She conceived and bore a son, verse 20 says. She named him Samuel due to the fact that she asked him of the Lord. His name means heard of the Lord. Great name, Samuel. Samuel would um, know all his life that he was a direct answer to prayer 
and the glory belong to God and God alone. We have prayed for some young ladies who had a difficult time to conceive and they became pregnant. Not all of them. And they went to doctors and went through different things and nothing happened. And um, Some people even, I know, opted out for adoption. Then after they adopted, they couldn't stop having babies. You know? God's in control of this stuff, man. Samuel would know all his life also. The very origin of his very life. The power of prayer. Remember he tells the people later on in 1 Samuel 12, 23. God forbid that I should sin against the Lord and cease praying for you. That's when they asked for Saul the king. He says, Samuel, don't get mad at us. Because Samuel thought they were rejecting him. And God tells Samuel, hey, they're not rejecting you, Sam. They're rejecting me. And they say, Samuel, don't, don't stop praying for us. He says, God forbid that I should stop praying and sin for you. Wow. A prayerless life is a sinful life. Look at verse 21 through 23. She did not go up to Shiloh again with her husband till she weaned Samuel. Alkadah and his entire house went up to offer Shiloh yearly, verse 21 tells us. And in 22, Hannah ministered to the child for about three years before taking him to Shiloh. Hannah knew he would appear before the Lord uh, and be there forever. That was her vow, verse 22. that's That's an amazing thing. Now, according to Jarkey, uh, weaning was at the end of 22 months, but others say that the end of 24 months, so two years. As uh, Kimshi and Ben Malek, and sometimes a child was three years old before he was weaned, and sometimes longer, which very probable for the case here. Uh, one individual, um, uh, Comister was his name, observed that there was a threefold weaning of the child in old times. The first from her mother's milk at three years old. The second from their tender age and care of dry nurse for seven years old. And the third from childhood or childish uh, uh, manners at 12 years of age. So the different periods of, of, of the child's development. Um, he believes that it is this last and metaphorical weaning which is uh, meant here when Samuel was 12 years of age and fit to serve in the temple. But the proper sense in the context seems to deny it. Again, the context is very important. Um, sometimes people have, uh, commentators have some um, information, but if it doesn't fit the context, it doesn't fit. Um, since she is said to have brought him when she weaned him, not 12 years old. And so, Hannah was true to her name. And a uh, perfect picture of her person, notice, it means grace and gracious. She would withhold nothing from the Lord that she had vowed. Um, Hannah, in verse 23, um, her husband told Hannah, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. 
So the indication is when she winged them, not as the commentators at times say. Um, I believe that it went beyond the normal spiritual care for that was required of them in Deuteronomy in preparation by the hand of the Lord. I believe God instructed her to prepare them. This child was going to be um, the first um, of, of um, the judges, the last of the judges that makes the transition into the monarchy. God's going to bring in David afterwards, everything else. The nation's going from uh, um, being just... Uh, an anarchical nation, everybody doing their own to bring in some kind of order. Um, for he was not only to be the last judge of Israel, but again, the first prophet. Um, and he would be a counselor to the king and everything else. Um, she kept her vow notice to the Lord in verse 24 to 28. In 24, Hannah went up to Shiloh with Samuel after she weaned him and presented him to the Lord in sacrifice. In 25, Hannah then presented Samuel to Eli after the sacrifice. And then Hannah reminded Eli in 26 to 28 of her prayer and vow that she would lend Samuel to the Lord as long as he lived. Notice Hannah and Eli worshiped the Lord together, not each other. At the end of verse 28, they both know it's the Lord that's doing this. Very important. Now, now we see that um, the purpose of God's were accomplished. He needed a man to judge over the, his people during this critical period of transition between anarchy and monarchy. And his eyes were looking to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards him. And he used the woman to get that man. Every man is born of a woman. Paul says, so a man cannot say, I have no need of a woman. The woman cannot say, I have no need of a man, for every man is of a woman. We're tied together, ladies and gentlemen. The culture, the different movements, whatever it may be, are always to pit the sexes in competition. Or in destructive manners. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, God says with Jeremiah, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end, Jeremiah 29, 11. We did an entire retreat with that theme way back in the mid-80s. Great text, great text. We are God's handiwork in Christ Jesus, created unto good works, Ephesians 2, 10 says, that we might walk in them. Whether we walk in them or not will be determined. If we are walking with God, we yield to God, we obey him. It doesn't force you to walk in the things he prepared for you. I'm sure I have not walked in everything. I'm sure I have missed some things. So we need to tune our ear to God so that we can obey him. We need to walk with God to do the work of God. Look at verse 1 through 11 now at chapter 2. Hannah expressed adoration here. In verse 1, her joy was centered on the Lord, not her situation any longer. She had come to this place even before she was granted her petition back in 
verse 18 of chapter 1. Because she heard from God. She believed God. Her awareness as to God's uniqueness and otherness was acknowledged. He's so different than us. There's nothing difficult for him. He, he can't learn. He's not dependent on anything. Verse 3, her exaltation of God's knowledge of man's inner thought and action reproved the proud in heart. In verse 4 and 5, her recognition of God's ability to destroy the mighty and strengthen the weak as well as causing barren, the barren to bear children is stated. He's sovereign. He's, nothing's impossible for him. Then in verse 6 down to 10, her proclamation of God's sovereignty, his ability to put down the proud, exalt the humble, and strengthen the king was declared. His eyes are looking to and fro all the time. Who's going to stand in the gap? Her commitment in verse 11 was fulfilled as the child Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest, and they went home. Wow. Amazing. The man Job, that's recorded in the Bible, an entire book after his name, like Hannah, acquired from the Lord more than he had at first, but not as a reward, but as God's love, knowing that they were content with the will of God and open to the purposes of God. Men and women that know God and walk with God, they're content with God. They know that things aren't going to make their life necessarily fulfilling. Nothing wrong with things that we need, but that's not the focus. The world's always looking after things, and if Christians are carnal, they, they'll think the same way as the world. There's a lot of miserable rich people. There's a lot of messed up rich people. Or you don't even have to go to richness, just doing pretty good. You're always, well, it's, it's the next girl, it's the next guy, it's the next car, it's the next drug, it's the next this, and, 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 and it just brings destruction. There's no fulfillment. Job says, when his wife said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? He says, oh, foolish woman, should I receive good at the hand of God and not evil? Even though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Wow. People always ask me, what is the purpose of the book of Job? You ready? God is sufficient for whatever happens in your life. There it is. God will be sufficient if he allows you to go through whatever you go through. You can trust him. Is it going to be easy? Nope. Look at Job. But he's sufficient. So Hannah's acquisition from God was abundant. Let me finish off with some lessons from Hannah. First, Hannah reaped to what she had sown by being in a multiple marriage. As horrible as that was. In the first chapter, verse 2 and 6. If Panina 
was Elkanah's first wife. I am sure that she thought it wouldn't be that bad and that she could handle it. So is the case with many Christians who get involved in certain relationships and intellectually they can deal with them, but once they enter into them, it's a whole different issue. They get ahead of God. Oh, you know, she's been married and she's got kids or this and that or whatever the scenario, put it in. Up here in my head, everything's nice and clean and we analyze, yeah, we'll do this, all that. Now, you tie the knot, now it's blood and guts. Now you got to deal with it. It's a whole different animal. So you need to make sure that you take those steps directed by God. That God is in it. That God is directing you. God is guiding you. Very important. If Elkanah married Panina after Hannah with her consent due to not being able to have children, then he is at fault for her injury. But she reaped as Sarah with Hagar, thinking she could handle it. So again, we trust ourselves. And then we get bitter against God or other people. Second, Hannah finally went to the Creator with her problem, with the right attitude. And for God's purposes, so that she entered into fellowship that changed her heart, which ultimately affected her countenance. Chapter 1, verse 18. What we need first is not so much the change of the environment or the condition. The first thing that has to change is my heart, my attitude. Then God begins to deal. Now I'm trusting God for it. Now when you have a panina in your life, you can go to everyone or you can go to God. Uh, I'd rather go to God. Adversaries are people who provoke you. And you can do one of two things. They will cause you to sin. And they will cause you to run to God. The strong tower and fortress. So you have to resist your flesh. Bring your thoughts into captivity. Put on the armor of God. Ask them to fill you with the Spirit and walk in obedience, trusting God. It always works out better. The other one only adds to your own hurt. Thirdly, Hannah experienced reality based on God's Word, not her emotions. It continued from day to day. Chapter 1, verse 18, 19, and 28. The countenance of her face was no longer Sad. In verse 18. The idea of worship is to give the proper adoration to a superior before you by prostrating yourself in reverence while aware of one's own unworthiness and inferiority. Very important. The vow was fulfilled, accomplishing God's will regarding the need of a man. God initiated. 
Hannah responded. God answered. Fourthly, Hannah was a mother who homeschooled her son. <laughs> and she turned out a prophet. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 22 and 219. She counted the cost and stayed home. She continued to provide input. 122 and 219. It's hard to be a mom. There's nothing more difficult, more tiring, and takes more time than anything else being a mother and a wife. But God has equipped you, ladies. Absolutely equipped you tremendously. The thing is that the world tells you totally something different. And so many women, even in Christ, feel sort of left out. Nonsense. Nonsense. Fifth, Hannah learned to rejoice in the Lord, who was her strength, and not in some situation or circumstance. 1 Samuel 2.1 Her joy was in the Lord. Her strength was from the Lord. So that your situation and circumstance doesn't dictate your perspective or your attitude or your heart. Is it pie in the sky? Nope. Is it difficult? No, it's impossible. Unless you trust the Lord. Her sacrifice was of love. Able to give up even the dearest thing to her, knowing it was the purpose of God, her son. Wow. Fifth, Hannah reaped fruit from her obedience to God in the years to come. Chapter 2, verse 18 through 21. She saw her son serve the Lord in verse 18. She continued to visit and instruct her child, verse 19, yearly. She saw God use her son as a priest and prophet, verse 18. She was acknowledged by Eli as a godly mother and father and received blessings for the loan of Samuel, in verse 20. She was blessed with more children. She had three sons and two daughters, verse 21. You believe all this stuff? Yep. I've seen it happen. Wow. Suzanne Wesley, wife of a pastor and mother of 19 children, has gone down in Christian history as the ideal mother. In spite of poverty, sickness, disappointment, she managed her household well. She early drew up for herself some rules and observed them. Listen carefully, ladies. No child was to be given anything because he cried for it. If a child wanted to cry, she said, cry softly. In her house was rarely heard loud cries by children. No eating or drinking between meals except when sick. Sleeping was also regulated. When very small, a child was given three hours in the morning and three in the afternoon. 
This was shortened until there was no sleep allowed during the daytime. Why? They'll sleep through the night. Punctually, the little ones were laid in the cradle and rocked to sleep at 7 p.m. Each child was put to bed. At 8 p.m., she left the room. She never allowed herself to sit by the bed until the child fell asleep. The little ones had their own table near the main table, and when they could handle forks and knives, they were promoted to the family table. Each child must eat and drink everything before him. Children must address each other as sister or brother. Respect. She never allowed herself to show through her ill temper or by scolding. She would always explain and explain. Thus, when John Wesley was in college, he wrote asking his mother what books to read and her recommendation influenced his life. John Wesley through methodical study and practice of the scripture, was used by God to reach multitudes, and the Methodist church was born. One woman, one man, lined up with the purposes of God. Amazing. So these are some simple but important lessons from Hannah that we can reap from. You can't say, well, it's different today. It is not different today. If you're a Christian, it's the same as it always has been. Every generation has had to yield and obey the word of God. You live in the world, but not of the world. You don't allow the world to set the agenda. You don't allow the world to describe and define what a wife is or a woman is when it's contrary to the Bible. The Bible is a plumb line. If you call yourself a Christian, male or female, then you've got the same annual. Every generation. Uh, I've never heard of the Bible being recalled or updated. Yet, science books, biology books, math books that I went to college 40 years ago, if I try to go back with them, they laugh at me. They've been updated. The Bible has never been updated. It has everything you need for every generation. Whether we obey it or not, that's a whole different thing. We reap from what we sow. If you sow beans, don't expect watermelon or bananas. You sow in kind, you reap in kind. God will not be mocked, Paul says. And so, the story of Hannah has provided <clears throat> lessons for us about the sovereignty of God, the wisdom and faithfulness of God on the one side, but on the other side, the obedient faithfulness of commitment for the purposes and the will of God through this threefold movement. Hannah's affliction caused her much suffering. <clears throat> Hannah's affliction drove her to a petition that aligned her with the will and the purposes of God. And Hannah's acquisition from God was abundant. 
just blessed her completely. Was it easy? Nope. Did she suffer? Absolutely. But mark the progress of her life. The outcome. One of these days, ladies, your children will rise up and call you blessed. Between now and then, they're going to call you many other things. Don't worry about it. You'll be obedient to God. You'll be the winner. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We thank you for tonight, and I thank you for the ladies. I pray for them, that your hand be upon them. Father, those young ladies that are uh, tuning their ear and their heart to you, and that you would protect them, that they would uh, walk with you, that they would um, not be unequally yoked, that they would wait on that husband that you will bring to them, Lord. Father, for the married couples, that your hand be upon them, they would walk with you and obey you, that your word would be the source of all they do. And that, Lord, you would just bless them to tune their ear to you, Lord, to walk in your ways. As you're praying, if, um, <clears throat> if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then we want to give you an invitation to accept him. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins, and rose from the dead, then you can call upon him to forgive you your sins and to save you. That's based that you agree with God that you're a sinner. That you fall short of any merit or any deserving or any work that merits the presence before God. And that you believe that when Jesus took your place on the cross and tasted death for you and took the judgment for your sin, that that is the only way that you can be accepted before God. That's gospel. So that no man or woman can glory. All we can do is respond to God's initiation, either to accept or reject. You might be over the internet or here or the radio. If you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the prayer of repentance. This is your prayer to the Lord, not to us. And if you mean it, he's going to forgive you of your sins. He's going to give you a new heart. He's going to give you a divine nature. And he's going to just radically transform your life as you get into the word of God. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.